Hello, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of What You Didn't Know About the Bible. Today, I'll be flying solo talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're going to talk about the Christmas story <clears throat> because it's it's a story that we're so familiar with. I mean, every year Christians celebrate, rightfully, so Advent, which is not just the advent of Christ's first coming, but we celebrate it in anticipation of his second coming. And there are all kinds of beautiful traditions uh that we that we help us celebrate the the birth of Jesus in Advent. But here's what happens. All of us have a composite view of the story of the birth of Jesus. A composite meaning bits and pieces that we pulled together from Matthew's gospel Parts, a lot of it we pull from Luke's gospel. And of course, we don't borrow any of the story from Mark or John because neither Mark nor John tell the story of the birth of Jesus, which in and of itself is a fascinating uh, observation to make. You think, well, huh, you can actually tell the story of Jesus without the Christmas story? Evidently, because Mark and John thought so. But what I'm talking about is this. We mash up the details of Matthew and Luke together, picking the parts we like, ignoring the parts that we don't, and we kind of pull together a homogenized, a harmonized, you might say, version of the Christmas story with a number of things imported that aren't necessarily these details are not in the scripture, but Boy, they are almost firm in our mind like bedrock. Like, of course, this is part of the Christmas story and because they make the, the front of Christmas cards. <laughs> we have songs, you know, uh, about drummer boys and, and hark the angels singing. And yet, when you look carefully at the narrative, and this is kind of kind of hard to, to admit, uh, our version of the Christmas story, the American version, you could say, the one you're familiar with, is really a, um, it is a fabric woven together that is not completely from the Bible. So what I want to do is, now I, you know, it's easy to talk about the obvious things that aren't in the story of Matthew or Luke. I mean, it, you know, I mean, there was no drummer boy, and you know that, and uh, and you've probably heard before that uh, Jesus was not born in a stable. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that he was born in a stable. Isn't that fascinating? Well, you say, well, there's a manger. Yes, but that doesn't mean he was born in a stable. Um, and, and the fact that the Magi are there when Jesus was born is not Matthew's version of the account. Um, and there's just so much about um, the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus that are um, assumed, and, and yet they're not explicitly um, appearing in, in Matthew or Luke. So, if you will, uh, what I want to do is, is point out what is in Matthew and what is in Luke, 
first. Talk about how different they are. Because if all you had was Matthew's gospel, you would know about uh, a heavenly host of angels appearing to shepherds. You wouldn't know about shepherds coming uh, to the baby Jesus in a manger uh, and wrapped in swaddling clothes. You wouldn't know um, about uh, the census that forced uh, Mary and Joseph to leave their home in Nazareth and go to Joseph's hometown, Bethlehem. You wouldn't know any of those things because, strangely enough, Matthew, although he gives the story of the birth of Jesus, the circumstances of his birth are not Matthew's uh, important. It's not important to him. It's, it's not his focus. It's the things that happen around the birth. I mean, for example, where the story begins in Matthew is uh, Bethlehem. He doesn't even mention Nazareth until after the child is several years old and uh, the family is returning from Egypt. Then they decide to settle in Nazareth. That's Matthew's version. And, and of course, uh, Matthew has parts of the story that don't appear in Luke. There, there are no magi in Luke's gospel. Herod does not show up. He's a prominent character in Matthew's account, but not in Luke. Herod's doesn't, it's not mentioned. Uh, Luke has a number of additional details that Matthew doesn't have, like Luke backs up the story, not just talk about the miraculous birth of Jesus, born to a virgin, but that he even tells the miraculous story of John the baptizer being born to a righteous old barren couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. So he starts the story back a few months. Matthew has a very dark story that's part of the Christmas story that we completely ignore. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, it won't show up in any Christmas pageant. It won't be a part of uh, any Christmas carol. We don't really sing about it. It certainly wouldn't make the front of a Christmas card. And what I'm talking about is the result of Herod's jealous rage against a rival king being born, and he has children up the age of two boys who are two years of age and younger, slaughtered, killed in Bethlehem. Luke doesn't mention that. <laughs> and maybe we would say, I don't blame it at all. Why in the world? We don't even want that to be a part of our Christmas story. You would know about it if all you had was Luke's gospel. And yet for Matthew, and it's not because he has a macabre, you know, kind of fascination with death. No, no, no. Matthew is telling a bigger story. He doesn't really want to focus on the actual details of mangers and, and shepherds and, you know, angelic hosts chanting glory to God. He, he doesn't want to talk about, he has a bigger story to tell. So what I want to do then is, and, and as a matter of fact, I would challenge you, get out a blank sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle of it and put Matthew at the head of one side and Luke on the head of other of the other side and just write out briefly work work through Matthew's 
infancy narrative in chapters one and two and just kind of highlight the details or the major points of the episodes that come. And then do the same for Luke, and you'll see they're almost two completely different stories. Now, they do share a few things in common. I mean, you know, Mary and Joseph, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, the fact that an angel comes, in Matthew's version, he comes to, an angel comes to Joseph to tell him about the significance of this child that's about to be born, where in Luke, he, the angel shows up and tells Mary, but there's an angel involved in bringing news of the birth of Jesus to both Joseph and Mary. And uh, he is born in Bethlehem, that they have that together. Um, but other than the fact that he's born to a virgin, an angel announces to Joseph and Mary and that he was born in Bethlehem, that's about it. The rest of the narrative, the rest of these stories are just completely different. I don't know if you noticed that before, but they are. It, they are it's as if you have two completely different accounts of the birth of Jesus. So the question is, why? Now, we may be used to this if you've paid attention carefully to the way the Gospels tell the story of the life and ministry of Jesus, the so-called synoptic problem. Even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke see together, that's what that word synoptic means if you've heard it before, they seem to follow the same general chronology. They soon means together, and optic, of course, means to see. We get our word optic from it. So, so synoptic, they see together the life of Jesus. They follow the same general order of events. And yet, if you've done a careful study, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke differ at times as to when certain events happen. They differ in the details of what was actually said and the sequence of, of not only the sayings of Jesus, but the uh, maybe even the emphasis of his ministry. It's really fascinating. And we haven't even brought in John. You know, often when I talk about John, I'll preface it by saying, and now for something completely different, you know, an echo from Monty Python, because John's gospel is so different. He doesn't follow the same chronology. He doesn't uh, have the same characters in his gospel story. Um, and, of course, what he tends to highlight, the miracles Jesus performed are very different, except for two, that are very different from what you read about in the synoptic gospel. So we're used to seeing the differences. But even in that, with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when we think about the life of Jesus, what we'll tend to do is we'll harmonize almost Without even trying, we'll harmonize those accounts as we're reading one version of it. How many times have you done that? Have you been reading, say, in John's gospel, and you're reading a story about when he walks on the water or when he feeds the 5,000, and you can't help but, oh, you know, you know that story from Matthew and Mark, so you can't help but import some of the details in Luke as well that are not in John or vice versa. You'll be reading Mark's version, and you'll import some details from John. Um, scholars call that reading the four Gospels horizontally, that we start, we try to help out the Gospel writer, you know? 
<laughs> you know, well, you know, Matthew doesn't quite tell us everything we know because we know this from John. So we'll squeeze it into Matthew. That'll help us make sense of the story. There's nothing wrong with that, except the problem is this. What we'll end up doing is we'll either pass over the details that are right there in front of us because we're trying to supply, we fill in the gaps with other gospels, or there are parts that in the gospel account that we don't really like, so we'll completely ignore them. That has certainly happened with the birth of Jesus. None of us like the story, and I don't think Matthew did either, about the slaughter of the children, the, the boys in Bethlehem. But it's a major part of the Christmas story. So what scholars talk about is what we need to do is rather than, you know, ignore the parts that we don't like and just keep the parts we want, almost like we're going through a gospel buffet, especially when it comes to the birth of Jesus, you have to ask the question. You have to ask yourself, why does Matthew want to tell the story this way? Why does he include these things? And Luke ignores him. And vice versa. Why does Luke want to tell the story of the birth of Jesus this way and ignore the things that Matthew thinks is vital? How can two gospel writers tell the same story so differently because they're convinced the details that they're offering are vital to their narrative? In other words, and this is what scholars encourage us to do, Try to read the Gospels vertically. Pretend like when you're reading Matthew, put blinders on. Don't go looking in Mark. Don't go importing almost unconsciously from Luke or John. Just let Matthew's Gospel be. Matthew wrote his Gospel not thinking, well, you know, Mark and Luke and John, they'll, they'll fill in the gaps. No, no, no. Matthew is telling his story, and he's including the vital parts that he only has so much room to tell. And that's something else we don't really realize, is that have you ever wondered why the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are about the same length? It's because basically that's the largest book that could be written as a, as a roll, as a papyrus scroll. They wouldn't write a document longer than that. So all the Gospel writers labored with, I've only got so much paper, my book can only be so big, which is a strange concept to us, you know, because we could just write forever, right? But they only had so much room in a papyrus roll. And so when a gospel writer makes decisions, I want this in my story and I don't want that, that is telling. That's significant. And I have discovered in my own spiritual formation, when I started reading the gospels vertically, from top to bottom, from the beginning of Matthew to the end, and put blinders on and let Matthew's gospel be the way he wrote it. And the same for Mark, Luke, and John. I saw things that I had never seen before. I began to read parts that I had ignored or skipped over. And even the gaps that I almost subconsciously filled in, I let the gap stay there, Right. Because Matthew knows, he knows the biggest story. I mean, John even says at the end of his gospel, there's so many other things that Jesus did, but I've told you these for a reason. Luke does as well. Others have tried, you know, others have written their accounts, but I'm going to write mine 
in, for a particular reason in a particular order. So let's think about the birth of Jesus, the story of his nativity, and let's ask, try to answer the question that is asked. Why does Matthew want to tell a story like this? You know, how is it unique? How is it different? And again, when it comes to the birth of Jesus, it's, it's very different from Luke. And so let's talk about the differences between Matthew and Luke. And then let's talk about why. What is Matthew trying to do as uh, a narrative that, you know, he's setting up a story this way, the whole gospel story. He wants, he wants you to be introduced to Jesus in a way that's very different from Luke because of the kind of gospel story he wants to tell. And then we'll do the same for Luke. You know, why does Luke want to start the story? Not with a genealogy like Matthew, you know, not with the story of, of right getting straight to the story of an angel telling Joseph that the reason Mary is pregnant, who is betrothed to him, is because an angel is making, is announced that God's making this happen. Instead, Luke decides, let's start the story with this, this old couple, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Well, who are they? What's going on here? What you didn't know about the Christmas story, according to Matthew and Luke. All right, first, Matthew. Matthew features a clash of two kings, if you will, two kingdoms. Scholars have noticed this. Any casual reader can see it's a very Jewish story. And where Herod doesn't even show up in Luke's gospel, Herod the Great is a major character in the story of the birth of Jesus. And you can learn a lot by, about Herod the Great simply by reading what Matthew tells us about him. So what you have is the main characters in the story of the birth of Jesus are Herod, the king of the Jews, and Joseph, who is the father of Jesus. Those are the main characters. Have you ever thought about that? It's true. I mean, it's the angel comes to Joseph and tells him what's going on. The angel, then uh, angels appear to Joseph in a dream to convince him to leave uh, Bethlehem because Herod's going to try to kill the baby. So Joseph is a major character, and so is Herod. And so what's going on? What's, what's the contrast between these two characters? Well, we know Joseph is described as a son of David. He's of Judah. Herod, you may not know this, although he has the title King of the Jews, Herod the King, and it takes a little extra work to find this out. Herod is not of the tribe of Judah. Get this. He's not even uh, a descendant of Jacob. No. Now, Herod is an Edomian. His ancestors are Edomites. They are descendants of Esau. And when Rebekah was carrying, I should say when, when um, uh, yeah, when Rebekah's carrying her two boys, Jacob and Esau, in her womb, remember God tells Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, 
tells her, not Isaac, tells Rebekah that although Esau will be the firstborn, Jacob will be the one through whom the birthright and blessing of God comes, the promise he made to Abraham. So indeed, the language is even used, the younger will rule over the older. And of course, you know how the story unfolds, how Esau loses his birthright and his blessing. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, we enter the story of Matthew. And it seems like the world is upside down because is a son of David, is a son of Judah, is a son of Jacob on the throne? Is he the king of the Jews? No. It's a son of Esau. It's an Edomite, an Edomian. It is Herod the Great. He is the king of the Jews. And he knows his claim to that kingdom is illegitimate. How do we know he knows? Because when the Magi who come to Herod's palace to congratulate him <laughs> that he has a son, you know, and you would like, how would they know? Well, they they're stargazers, you know. The stars told them, and the way they the in their day, astronomy and astrology were one and the same thing. They looked into the heavens and they believed the stars were divine powers that gods even, that communicated future events or the will of the gods. So these ancient astrologers slash astronomers see a sign in the heavens that a king, a new king has been born. So of course they're going to go to the king of the Jews' home and uh, offer their congratulations, offer their gifts, because evidently there's something about the sign that convinced them this new king is going to be incredibly powerful. We better make friends with him. ASAP. Yet they're surprised, as well as Herod, to find out, no, he doesn't have a new son. As a matter of fact, you do a little reading about Herod the Great. He was so paranoid about losing his throne and the end of his life, he had his sons, either some several of the sons either killed or imprisoned, and wives as well. So when he hears that there are these strangers showing up saying a new king has been born and the heavens have declared it. It's a divine message. He asks the experts, okay, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they say, well, yeah, this, the, the, the true son of David, the legitimate heir to the throne of the descendant of Jacob, that child will be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah. So sure enough, uh, the Magi are led to, to Bethlehem, the city of David. And there, uh, having followed the star for two years, they go to a house. It even says so. Not a stable, a house. And they bring their gifts. And we don't know how many Magi. The word Magi means, you know, we get the word magic from it. They are wise men. They're wise guys. Uh, they believe they could harness the powers of the gods, you know, not only by reading the stars like a horoscope and getting divine wisdom, but they, could, they believe they could even manipulate powers for their adva advantage. And these powers have led them to this child in a house who is the king 
of the Jews, the true legitimate king. And so now Herod is threatened. He, he's threatened by the fact that uh, he knows he's an illegitimate king, and yet here's this child that even outsiders like Magi know that the true king has been born. So what does he do? He decides he's going to eliminate every rival to his throne. Just as he had some of his own sons killed, he's going to have all the boys in Bethlehem, two years of age and younger, killed. And Bethlehem was a little bitty village, even though it was a horrible atrocity. And I'm not trying to minimize it, but probably no, no more than a dozen boys were killed. But still, how does Jesus escape? Well, because an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, this is what this wicked king's going to try to do. So they find refuge. They're refugees in Egypt. And when you work through the story, <clears throat> when a wicked king tries to exterminate the future savior of Israel by having him killed, by killing all the boys, uh, then you can't help but hear echoes of the story of Moses. Indeed, Matthew is not only showing how this true son of David has been born by the power of God, he's a legitimate heir to the throne, but he is that new Moses. His beginning is even echoes of Moses' story uh, where he escapes the evil plot of a wicked, despotic ruler like Pharaoh, like King Herod, and he will deliver his people like a shepherd and recover the lost sheep and bring them into the land that is inherited by the meek. It's absolutely brilliant. It's a very Jewish story. Matthew, therefore, for Matthew, as as horrific as it is and as as offensive as it is and something we certainly don't want to talk about during Christmas. Can you see why the slaughter of the Anensis is crucial to his story? Jesus embodies the heroes, every hero of Israel, including Moses. That's why in Matthew's gospel, one of the first things Jesus does is he climbs a mountain like Moses, and delivers the law of God in a way that's even more revolutionary than the law of Moses. All right, so that's Matthew. What about Luke? <laughs> well, Luke wants to tell a different story. For him, you know, the reason he doesn't mention Herod is because Herod is not the major threat, you might say, to the kingdom that God is establishing through his son, Jesus. Now, it's still a very Jewish story. I mean, the, 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 the common narrative, the plot of a righteous old barren couple who can't have a son and then has one miraculously, oh my goodness, how many times has a Jew heard that story? Whether you talk about Abraham and Sarah, whether you're talking about you know, Isaac and Rebecca, I mean, this is the story that happens over and over again. And so sure enough, that's how Luke wants to tell the beginning. A righteous old barren couple is going to give birth to a son, much to their surprise. But God is out to do a new thing. It's one thing to talk about an old woman having a child. It's quite something else 
to talk about a virgin conceiving and giving birth. This is a brand new story. Mary sees it. She sees the significance of it. Because what Luke is out to do is to show that Jesus is not just a king who will threaten a guy like Herod. No, no, no. It's more than that. The kingdom of God coming to earth will even overtake the powerful ruler, Caesar Augustus. How could that be? That's why Luke starts the, the birth of Jesus and locates you know, them in Nazareth, Mary and Joseph. They're in Nazareth. And Caesar Augustus acts like he owns the whole world. That's why he thinks he can tax all the world. So all the world is going to be taxed. And Mary and Joseph look like puppets, like pawns in the hands of this mighty king, Caesar Augustus, who rules the world. But what Luke is out to show is that under the nose of Caesar Augustus, another ruler will be born. And he's not out just to take, you know, take on Herod the Great. He's not even there just to eclipse the Roman Empire. He's there to rule the whole world. As a matter of fact, Luke's gospel has often <clears throat> featured this. There's this emphasis that he's the, his is the gospel of the underdog, that Jesus is the Lord of all. Why? Well, where Matthew has you know, the setting is a royal palace and wealth and gifts of gold and frankincense and this very, you know, very Jewish kind of royal story. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is born to poor Jewish couple, a poor Jewish couple. How do we know they're poor? Because when they go to redeem Jesus, every child that opens the womb since the days of the Passover, every Jewish boy who was born, the couple had to go to the temple and redeem, buy the child back, if you will, from God. God owns every firstborn from that point forward. And what was required of a couple to redeem the child back was a lamb, unless you're poor. And if you're poor, then God allowed you to offer two turtle doves, two of those birds that are symbolizing peace. So can, can, you can't help but hear the, the echo, right, of a lamb that is used to redeem or two turtle doves to bring about a kingdom of peace by these poor peasants who are bringing this child into the world, even though they're manipulated like pawns in the mighty chessboard of Augustus who rules the world as a despotic, tyrant race because the and and really had no rights to claim the promised land that God promised Israel under his nose in born you know under the rumor of scandal a child born out of wedlock a child born to two poor Jews who have to go to Bethlehem under those difficult circumstances of giving birth uh, and he's brought into the world in a manger very different, right? You don't have the royal furnishings and the trappings of gold and, and a palace being announced, whereas he was born king of the Jews. No, no, no. In Luke's story, a specter of light pierces the darkness, and a child is brought in like a common shepherd. 
like like a common Jewish boy, put in a manger, a feeding trough, which was probably a feeding trough in, a, in the house, either just in, in the house or just outside the house. All the homes, you know, you had to, you, you, most Jewish homes were single room dwellings. And um, especially during the winter months, they would bring what livestock they might have, which would be like maybe a goat for milk. And if they were wealthy enough, they, they might have a, a, a donkey, you know, as a beast of burden. If, if um, a laborer like a carpenter had to carry rocks, wood that he would use to <clears throat> work on whatever he was working on. So you would bring the animals inside your home. It was normally a bi-level home, and the bottom floor they would they would bring they would have a manger there, made out of stone. And during warm weather, they would have the animals kept at night. And we don't know when Jesus was born for sure, uh, but whether you know it was in the coldness of a of a of a early spring or late you know late winter or not. We know that Luke wants to tell the story that Jesus is born to two common Jewish poor people under unusual circumstances, placed in a manger. And uh, who comes to visit him? Is it these dignitaries from the East with great riches, gifts? No, no, no. It's common shepherds. Shepherds who are minding their own business, taking care of a sheep. Bethlehem was known for that. Bethlehem was the place where the shepherds would graze their sheep on the hills surrounding that little hamlet of a town. And because right next to Bethlehem is Jerusalem. And you wouldn't have to take the sheep far because Jerusalem and its temple needed a lot of lambs to carry on the sacrifices. So here Jesus, born in the city of David, a shepherd boy, Bethlehem, and the shepherds are, to, are the ones that the angels wake up, right? They're taking care of their flock at night, which probably tells you it's not cold, it's not inclement weather, which tells me I think the manger was probably that feeding trough was just outside this little house that Joseph and Mary, there wasn't room for them inside the guest room. And God doesn't wake up you know, the shoemakers. He doesn't wake up the bakers or the millers or the leather workers. No, he, he uh, wakes up the shepherds keeping watch over their flock at night. And these angels do not sing to them. They chant. Notice that. They chant glory to God in the highest. And they're told to go to this little house, look for a child in a manger. And it just, it's poetically beautiful that this little boy in a feeding trough and surrounded by little shepherds that are used to taking care of little lambs. And that's the way the Son of God comes into the world and launches a kingdom for the poor, for the shepherds, for the outcast, for the marginalized. Blessed are the poor, this boy will say as a man, because the kingdom of God belongs to them. Indeed, Jesus launched a kingdom that would not only overtake Herod and overtake Rome and last beyond uh, to the ends of the earth, 
Jesus launched a kingdom that overtakes the whole world. He is Lord of all. See, it's a very different story. And Luke has his reasons, because that, that's his emphasis. That's why Jesus tells parables of great reversal, where the rich, you know, the parable of the rich man Lazarus, it's the rich man who's blessed of God that ends up in Hades, and it's the poor leper who is rushed to Abraham's bosom. Jesus is turning the world right side up, where the rich and the powerful, like Roman emperors who claim pretentiously that they own things that really don't belong to them, this Jesus comes along and empowers the poor and the weak and the marginalized and says the kingdom of God belongs to them. Why? Because this one who is rejected and crucified will be raised from the dead. And no matter how poor you are or how rich you are, we all need a king that overcomes death itself. Beautiful, isn't it? Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the Lord of all, even Lord of Caesar. <laughs> and it's no wonder then we Gentiles love Luke. You know, that's the story we love. We love the manger. We love the shepherd boys, you know, the angels declaring glory to God the highest. We, we love this story. And we might sprinkle a little bit of Matthew in there. You know, yeah, we talk about the Magi because we do like the idea of getting gifts, <laughs> giving and receiving gifts, uh, or giving and receiving gifts. But uh, Matthew's version, although it's very dark, it, it encourages me to know that even when Jesus came into the world, there were horrible injustices inflicted by despotic rulers that Christ comes to overcome, just like a Moses who leads his people out of slavery. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph were wondering as they're hiding out in Egypt, waiting for a wicked ruler to die. How long, O oh Lord, before the meek inherit the earth? How long? And Jesus embodies that hope even to this day. So that even when children who die way before their time, we say, oh, that's a familiar story. And even uh, Christ himself came as that vulnerable child, and we have hope because through him we have a kingdom that overcomes evil and suffering and death itself. That's Matthew. That's Luke. That's two different Christmas stories. And both of them, to me, are equally important. Even though we favor maybe Luke over Matthew, I'd encourage you, get out Matthew and just appreciate his story for what he's trying to say. And then read Luke again. Read Luke separately. Knowing the Magi weren't there when Jesus was born. He was probably two years old when they came. Don't import that into Luke. Let Luke's version be what it is and see if in both cases accounts, you see indeed Christ, who is not only the rightful heir to David's throne, the king that overcomes a wicked man like Herod the Great, he is indeed the, the emperor, the Lord of all. Well, I hope that helps. Uh, I want to say Merry Christmas, <laughs> but I know this 
this episode's going out right around the time of as we're getting ready to celebrate Thanksgiving. And as a as a postscript, let me just offer this word. Uh, Josh and I are going to take a break. We appreciate uh, our listeners who've been, um, you know, following our podcast and downloading the episodes and our numbers continue to grow and we're encouraged by that. But we're going to take a break for the holidays. Um, this will be the last podcast uh, for this year. But beginning in 2024, we'll have a new uh, slate of guests, new group of scholars and some that we've had before bring them on to teach us things about the scriptures that help us read God's word better what you didn't know about the Bible and we have still so much to learn Merry Christmas and Happy New Year <music>